You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. You have to understand your customer and your client. So even if you're not, you know, Tanium or Palo Alto or whoever, you need to understand what are the vulnerabilities that this client has, especially in relation to whatever my product or service may be, even if it's just ancillary, it's just on the side. You have to understand what are they, what are their challenges? What are they trying to do in terms of cybersecurity? Are they trying to you know, prevent ransomware attacks? What is their strategy for that? Are they taking a more proactive approach or are they kind of relying on cyber insurance and just, you know, taking that kind of approach? By understanding all of these, even if you're not per se a cybersecurity vendor, you're going to be able to talk to your client, talk to your customer in a way that makes them understand that you understand what they're thinking about. And then you can try to, then you can work in how does your product, how does your service, how does your solution fit into this framework of what they're trying to do around cybersecurity? Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. In the face of economic volatility, extreme weather events, and rapidly shifting demographics, the demand for public services has skyrocketed. And the gap between what citizens need and what governments can provide has widened. In response to massive disruption, government leaders have had to act quickly and decisively to show citizens they're capable of navigating crisis and change. We really saw this show through at the beginning of COVID and throughout as public sector organizations that were still in the early stages of digital transformation had to prioritize IT investments to facilitate new public services and keep essential workers online. And much of that work is still ongoing. In 2022, Gartner predicts that global government IT spending will grow 6.5% to $557 billion. That figure is up roughly $100 billion over 2020. So how will government organizations need to evolve in the wake of this digital transformation? And where do they have opportunities to strengthen public trust? To gain a better understanding of how the public sector can succeed in a time of upheaval, I've asked Ryan Gallant, the Chief Executive Officer of Slate Research and Consulting, to join the show and help shed some light on some of the challenges he's seeing governments facing right now and how they're looking to adapt. We're going to be covering a lot, guys, so buckle up. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, Thank you so much, Brian. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. I like conversations like this because your background is so broad and we're going to be able to cover so much. I think the listeners are going to get a lot out of today. One of the things I was actually presenting at an event yesterday, and, and one of the things that I, I talked about was how interrelated digital transformation technologies are. You go to, well, I, I, use, I use this analogy. My, my wife and I were sitting in a sunroom, um, and we're sitting in our sunroom, and we were looking around the house at all the different projects that we, that we did over COVID, and we were saying, yeah, that one led into that one, and, and this one kind of bled into this one. And you start to look at, at the floor now, and everything kind of moves together. So I think 
I look at that as a good analogy for how digital transformation works, while everything kind of flows and it's interconnected. And um, I think with your background, we'll get to cover a lot. One of the things I, I wanted to start with is you mentioned the the modular approaches to government IT. And I'm, I'm interested to kind of pull on that thread a little bit. I, I, I wonder how much government in the past has really tried to think of themselves in, in a modular way to make sure they're almost ready for the future, I would imagine. What are some of the things that you're seeing in government? And, and is this strategy something that you're seeing is becoming mainstream? And how much should vendors try to support them as, in their future-proofing efforts? Well, I think it's it, there's a lot of things going on in these modular approaches to either mo modernization, digital transformation. And there's a couple of different areas that are making this sort of piecemeal approach more attractive to governments. So the first thing is uh, there have been lots of, lots of cases, especially in state governments, where they get into these very large, large contracts uh, with these big system integrators or other big vendors on big systems like unemployment, or child welfare or SNAP or whatever it may be. And they get boxed into these contracts. Um, they're very expensive. They got long terms. And then when something goes wrong, they don't have a whole lot of recourse. They get stuck in legal proceedings, litigation for years and years. It can be very costly over budget. So that's one aspect of, of what government is kind of trying to avoid. Some governments are even going so far as to explicitly explicitly state that they won't do things like that. So the government uh, in New Jersey, for instance, has specifically said that they're going to avoid these giant IT impl implementations like that because of the, of the problems they've had in the past. Can I so ask you this? One, if, if they're trying to avoid it, what are they, are, are they putting different terms in their contracts or are they actively looking at their programs from a strategy perspective to make sure they're, they're pieced in a, in a certain way that it doesn't get locked in? How, how are they approaching that? Sure. So let's take something like uh, Medicaid. So MMIS systems, these are giant contracts, usually some of the largest tech contracts or even the largest contracts that some states may have. Um, traditionally, there would be one giant vendor who would be in charge of the entire Medicaid system. So that's, you know, the claims processing from the people getting the care to the claims coming from the federal government, reimbursement, verifying the visits, all of this stuff. Well, what, what's been happening in the last decade, 15 years or so, instead of one giant contract covering the entire MMIS, uh, they'll put out individual contracts for the different modules of it. So there will be a contract for the electronic visit verification. There might be a, uh, a contract for the pharmacy. There might be a contract for uh, payment processing, claims processing. So it's a sort of a spreading spreading the contract out, spreading the work and the scope out, uh, sort of like diversifying a portfolio, if you will. So it, let me ask you this, in your opinion, because I feel like government is very big right now in trying to drive more efficiencies, um, whether that comes from the aggregation of different technologies into a contract, what have you, but like you said, they're trying to get away from it. How efficient is a process like that? Or are they finding ways to make those very niche contracts efficient in a larger program. How, how is that working? So that's, that is an interesting little wrinkle in all of this, because at the same time, we do have this trend where we're trying to uh, 
minimize risk and we've got more separate contracts going out. But another trend that I have been seeing in general is this, this idea of a, a CIO as a broker or government as a broker where it's the, the IT enterprise IT is really serving more as a facilitator, a, a business facilitator uh, to work with private vendors who come in and help with whatever it may be, modernization, uh, running the programs, whatever it may be. So it's kind of in uh, in contest with each other, those two ideas right there. Um, so uh, the good thing about Medicaid is that the system integrators have lots and lots of experience working in these sort of contracts and working with these technologies, these systems and these programs. So the, you know, the big systems integrators out there, Accenture, Deloitte, um, DXC on Medicaid, a lot of them are very, very familiar working with all the different parts of Medicaid. Now, when we get to other systems, uh, unemployment, child welfare, SNAP, and then even on a more, like a lower level with case management systems, any sort of data system, uh, record system that a government may have, that's when these modular approaches, I think, become a little bit more, uh, I think that's where the rubber is hitting the road. Uh, in, in, instead of feeling like we need to completely transform this entire system, our entire way that we do our business in one big fell swoop, one big project, we can just update this one system. We can collect data a little bit better over here. We can share and secure data a little bit better over here. Um, so the success and the transformation builds upon itself. It's a bit of a snowball. Another advantage to that sort of piecemeal process is that it gives the workforce, uh, the employees, more time to adjust. So we've heard a lot about, you know, the silver tsunami, the great resignation, you know, hiring retain and retaining skilled workers. There's a lot of these things out there. We even see it in the private sector, hard time finding employees everywhere in the private sector right now as well. Um, if you do a massive implementation of a new technology or a new system, uh, you may not get the buy-in from the users, right? The actual government employees who are going to be working. So this piecemeal approach makes it easier for them. They don't have to completely reinvent the wheel, learn something completely new uh, and, and massive right away. So that's another advantage of this approach. Yeah, I can totally see that. And the other thing that comes to mind too is I, I'm a big advocate for the crawl, walk, run type of strategy mm -hmm. when you're rolling out, especially larger programs. You want to, I think you even said this, you can gain momentum. You want to start rolling downhill in some of these things. Adoption internally is one of those, but you want to start to see outcomes. Do you think as they niche these contracts apart and they start to roll these out, that almost to me is a manifestation of that crawl, walk, run because they can take a contract start to work on a, a specific aspect of a program, start to gain momentum as they move into the next contract. I think that that could be another piece of the strategy that they're rolling out. Absolutely. And then they're not in this situation where, uh, let's say they start a new implementation or a new program and it doesn't go swimmingly, right? That can make the rest of that long, big contract, that one big spell swoop seem really challenging, intimidating, and then that's how you get behind. That's how you get then, over budget. You they know? can pivot. Yeah, it allows them the ability mm. to pivot for sure. Exactly. Um, so if you have one relatively smaller contract with less financial risk uh, and less risk to other resources, your people, your time, et cetera, 
If it doesn't work out, you can pivot. On the other hand, if it works out really well, that could open up even more doors, new doors, ways of doing business, ways of working with information, providing services that you perhaps did not expect um, when you came into the, when you started the implementation or you started the project. There really are a lot of advantages and flexibility and agility to kind of this, uh, what do you say, crawl, walk, run approach. I, I kind of, li I like that analogy, yeah. You can have it. <laughs> thank you, thank um, you. I, I want to pivot a little bit. I want to get to something a little bit more foundational, at least strategically and challenge-wise, which is cybersecurity. We've touched on this a, a few times in this show, not only from the government side, but even bringing in some private sector experts to talk about it. But this feels like an area that is constantly evolving, right? There's always new threats happening. Um, I would imagine thousands to hundreds hundreds of thousands or even millions of different intrusions that are mitigated every single day. And you have bad actors that are trying to find new and innovative ways to get past certain barriers that government has put up because there is so much data and kind of uh, jewels behind the wall there. I, I know cybersecurity is one of the things that you have within your background. I'm curious to get an understand at least from your vantage point what, where are we current state within cybersecurity, right? I know we have programs like FedRAMP that are driving cloud security. I know CMMC has been a big conversation over the past couple of years and what that's going to look like to drive strategy, not only brick and mortar cybersecurity strategy, but also cybersecurity strategy. Where, where are we in government right now? Can you, can you level set us a little bit? At the beginning, I, I sort of see government and what it is, you know, in its nature, um, it moves a little bit slower than the private sector and it's got more rules it's got to follow. It's got more regulations, sure. it's got more people, it's got to answer to. Now, this is a good thing and a bad thing. So a lot of governments are designed that way on purpose to be insulated from you know minor changes, sort of a whiplash effect. Now, the problem, that can be a challenge when something like cybersecurity comes in. Cybersecurity is moving very, very fast. It's always changing. And usually the people who are trying to attack government or are malicious towards government, they're not playing by the same rules. So they don't need to go out and formulate a new strategic plan. They don't need to put out an RFP. You they know, don't have to go sitting. through procurement to, uh, to intrude a firewall. Exactly. They're not, they're not on a NASPO vehicle. They're sitting <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a, gov a Russian government building in, in Moscow or they're in Iran or North Korea or who knows where they are, right? So government is insulated from these constant quick changes, but this also means they might be a little bit slow to respond. So what I, what I see happening is that the federal government is realizing this. And they're realizing this, I think, mostly because they're realizing the national security, uh, the national security risks to having um, vulnerable state, local governments, education, et cetera, um, both from just uh, a data and information standpoint, you think about the, the electric grid, utilities, transportation systems. If a foreign actor or a malicious actor were able to shut down the electric grid in any state or any county, you can imagine the, the dangers and the problems that would cause both to human life potentially, but to economic productivity, uh, just to the way our, our country runs. So I think the federal government is realizing that a top-down approach is going to be needed to get cybersecurity going in a direction that 
is good for everyone because it's really hard for the thousands of counties or the thousands and thousands of cities and towns around the country to say, okay, we're going to put in endpoint detection and we're going to have all of our remote workers on VPNs and blah, 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 when they're thinking, well, I got to go figure out how to do repair the potholes or fix the streetlights. You know, comp these competing priorities can make cybersecurity seem like a far away, far reaching thing that they really just can't do anything about. So the federal government has stepped in. Um, Homeland Security, the DHS, is taking a large role. In the infrastructure bill uh, last year, in there, there was a billion dollars for state and local cybersecurity grants. So this has been the most explicit and the most direct way that the federal government is saying, okay, we need y'all to do something here. We need to get this together. We have to have some sort of major funding uh, and a major infusion of cash and a program around this to get our cybersecurity programs going in government across the country. So with that money, which is going to be distributed mostly by states to lower levels of government, there's lots of requirements. You have to put together a cybersecurity council, an advisory board, and you have to meet certain standards that the government is setting. So it's trying to, the federal government, in my view, is trying to get everybody on the same page, have a starting point, um, and then they're stepping in and, and being the bankers, essentially, because uh, if we waited, if they waited for all these local governments and all these states to uh, appropriate the money themselves, it may never happen, right? So, how much did how much did the CDM program? Um, I guess I mean I, I'm aging myself now. I mean, God, was that close to a decade ago where that kicked off? But how much did that program help level set government? Because I feel like there was a big gap in terms of what people not only thought they needed but had had allowance to to bring on to secure themselves. Did that program really achieve what it was trying to do, or is, is it achieving right now what it was trying to do in terms of level setting the federal government at least? That's the hard part for me when I'm kind of negotiating my mind progress. How do we measure progress on something that's constantly evolving and constantly changing? Because by its nature, cybersecurity is something that it's not static. It's at the forefront uh, of, of technology. It's really some of the most, you know, the things that these malicious, actor, malicious actors do, you know, from an academic or a professional standpoint, are sometimes very, very innovative, very intelligent. Um, government should be recruiting. Very, but the federal government does. The intelligence agencies definitely are recruiting these, you know, NIA, NSA, FBI, CIA, they do recruit these people. But the government trying to constantly respond to these very sophisticated and constantly changing attacks, it, it, it's just, it can't shift quick enough. It can't adjust and it can't pivot that quickly. So I, I feel like the federal government has now realized that, okay, a much, much stronger hand needs to come in and needs to guide what's happening here. And I think the federal government right now is really the only, the only entity that would be capable of doing it. I mean, individual states could step in, you know, states certainly have the resources and the powers to do this, but they have so many other things on their plate. And plus that's a, there's 50 different states. That's a piecemeal approach. It won't get us anywhere. So the federal government is basically saying we can't have any any kinks in the armor, right? So if one state is a weakness, our whole country or the whole the whole nation could be vulnerable. Um, so I think I think local governments and states have just not been able to pivot quickly enough, and that's 
and, and that's not a that's not a you know a criticism of them. It's just the nature of the beast. What should what should vendors that are operating in this environment know? Right, I I, I think especially especially some of the newer vendors that don't have as much background in in navigating the federal government or even state and local government, but even some of the the ones that have have been here for a while, I think there's still because of the dynamic nature of this area, there's still things that we don't know that we don't know if that makes sense. What are some of the what are some of the things or what are the recommendations that you would make to a vendor that even if they're not specializing in cybersecurity, right? You don't have to be a McAfee or or whatever to to understand cyber to know that you have to navigate it. What should these vendors know, and what should they be doing as they're bidding on contracts and, and operating this environment? So this would be my advice to vendors working with government in sort of in any in any shape or fashion. It's just. You have to understand your customer and your client. So even if you're not, you know, Tanium or Palo Alto or whoever, you need to understand what are the vulnerabilities that this client has, especially in relation to whatever my product or service may be, even if it's just ancillary, it's just on the side. You have to understand what are they, what are their, uh, what are their challenges? What are they trying to do in terms of cybersecurity? Are they trying to you know, prevent ransomware attacks? What is their strategy for that? Are they taking a more proactive approach or are they kind of relying on cyber insurance and just you know, taking that kind of approach? By understanding all of these, even if you're not per se a cybersecurity vendor, you're gonna be able to talk to your client, talk to your customer, in a way that makes them understand that you understand what they're thinking about. And then you can try to, then you can work in, how does your product, how does your service, how does your solution fit into this framework of what they're trying to do around cybersecurity? Does it make some data more secure? Does it uh, duplicate some efforts? So you've got another, you've got another source of backup. Uh, does it make your employees more efficient or less uh, vulnerable to some sort of malicious attack, ransomware, phishing scheme, whatever it may be. So try to figure out what their challenges are, what they're doing to address those challenges, and then how your solution or your product fits in there. So this is less of a cyber question, but it sort of definitely has implications into cybersecurity. How do government agencies, large and small, share information? around some of these some of these issues. I know we've seen different different advisory committees and councils that the government has has stood up across cyber, across data, just CIO councils, et cetera. Are these areas and are these the primary mechanisms for government to share this information to make sure that they are protecting themselves in the right way from a cyber perspective or taking advantage of the most innovative methodologies and technologies from a data perspective? Is, is this something that you're seeing becoming a, a pretty instrumental part of the way government shares information and drives outcomes? Yeah. So at the state level, a lot of this, a lot of things happening are happening at the state level. They're sort of the agents of the federal government. Uh, they're who the cities and the counties look up to. So at the state level, a lot of states are taking, and, and a lot of people are talking about this whole of state approach to cybersecurity. 
meaning the cities and the counties, the, the localities in a state have to be on the same page and the same plan as the state government, not only for financial funding reasons, but logistic and operational reasons and to make the, make the programs more effective. Um, this is also another area where I think that big hand of the federal government can be very, very impactful. You know, somebody or something, an entity coming in that has the, the financial weight, uh, the, the knowledge and the expertise to guide states and localities. Um, also on the state level, many states are opening up dedicated security offices within enterprise IT. Alaska, Virginia has a very, very mature and effective uh, cybersecurity agency. So state governments are starting to really, really focus on it uh, as a, as a, for a state program. It's not getting siloed into individual apartments. So there's a lot of states, there's, you know, there used to be a cybersecurity analyst in the parks department or in the natural resources department. And they may have, you know, met once every other month with the other cybersecurity analysts from all the other departments. Now that's sort of being centralized under a cybersecurity office or a state security office, where there's a lot more information sharing, there's some more standards, best practices, regulations, common tools. Um, so a lot of states are mandating basic, you know, common tools that uh, all employees must use. Uh, a lot of states are mandating cybersecurity training and awareness and education programs. So federal government and the state government are playing a very large role in sort of guiding guiding the path for the lower levels of government. So that's interesting. How so I I was actually thinking more around like the the federal CIO council and and things like that the 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 chief data officer council the, the way they share information there but how are you seeing the federal government and the state government and the local governments working together to share the information that they have? I feel like when I look outside of the U.S., they do that really well, but I also think the scale at which they have to do it is much smaller than where the U.S. is, right? Maybe when you get into Australia and, and, and Canada and some of the other areas, and even that is, is, um, is kind of bisected by province, but when you go whole of government approach and you want to share those best practices, how are you seeing that happen in the U.S.? Because it has to happen, right? Uh, here, uh, here we run into another thing that I spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, sort of the, the foundational structure of the United States government, our federalist system, where we have a federal government and then we have 50 state governments. And the impacts of that federalism on actual policy or the way that good programs and services and, and stuff are actually Done. So it's something I think about a lot, and I, I, try to find, I find it very interesting how we sort of bridge this gap, because at the same time, we're very many, we have this, federalism is very important to the sort of foundational structure of the United States, how our country works, but at the same time, it can also cause a lot of, a lot of problems. Uh, we can see that here when it comes to information sharing, best practices, things like that. Um, right now, I would say that DHS, CISA, um, the federal level are really kind of taking the lead on putting together information for state governments. Uh, there's 
lots of webinars. They have tons of resources on their websites. They put out guides for state governments and local governments. Um, so to me, yeah, the Department of Homeland Security and the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure um, Security Agency or Administration, those are the two federal agencies that I really see taking the lead in diffusing information and best practices to other governments throughout the country. But speaking of best practices, before I, before we wrap up, I do one of the things I do want to cover is where you see the state ramp program evolving into. I know obviously FedRAMP, everybody knows FedRAMP. Um, it's been around for over a decade now. And I think it's it's gone a long way to drive cloud adoption at the federal level. I think security, if I remember correctly, when I was looking at research uh, close to a decade ago, security was the number one reason why CIOs were not getting to the cloud. And looking at that research a decade on, it I'm not even sure it was in the top five, right? Because that had really mitigated that pretty holistically. And now we're looking at the best way to bring a program like that to the state government level. And state ramp is seemingly the answer. Um, I'm, I'm curious to get your opinion. I know individual states have kind of put together disparate programs you had the the tex ramp program in texas and mm -hmm. um even though texas is the size of a country in, in europe or even bigger yeah. than the size of in europe but as you've seen the evolution of this program happen what are you seeing right now and, and th this is a good way to kind of level set it and where do you see the future of a program like state ramp going do you think it'll have the impact that FedRAMP did and the same kind of oversight that FedRAMP did uh, again i think this goes right back to that the inherent the inherent nature of, of our federalist government. Uh, when the federal government implements a program like that, it's got the full weight and force of the entire federal government. All the money, they're all under the same jurisdiction. When you got 50 different states, thousands and thousands of localities, school districts, universities, it becomes a lot more difficult. So, whereas a Texas who has an, an extremely uh, well-developed, very mature and thorough IT Governance program, it's, you know, it's, it's a model, or California, which is uh, lots of resources, may be able to implement some sort of cloud adoption model. Uh, maybe Alaska or Wyoming or Idaho would not be able to do that. And then that gets us into a situation where we've got 50 different, we're at 50 different points on the journey, you know. Um, I, I, think where we're going is a state-driven model, whatever it may be. I think it's going to be disparate. I think each state might come up with their kind of their own thing. But I really do think states are going to have to be what's driving this sort of adoption top-down, just like the federal government is trying to adopt, uh, drive the adoption from states. I mean, cloud is interesting because... When you talk to when you talk to government leaders about the advantages and the disadvantages of cloud, they can often be they can often be very in conflict with each other. Um, some people want to go to cloud because to improve cybersecurity, and then some people are afraid to go to cloud because of cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. So it's it's that's very interesting to me, and I, I think the states are really going to have to be the ones driving this uh, on a state by state basis. That makes a lot of sense. I, and I used I used Texas not coincidentally one because they do have a a best in pl class program that I I think I mean 
get, get your opinion. I think Texas text ramp was one of the things that actually was a, a catalyst for kind of driving state ramp forward. But two, um, I, I'm having Mandy Crawford on the show in, in an upcoming episode. And, and I think mm -hmm. this will be something that we'll talk about to understand kind of her vision for the state of Texas and how she sees that a program like that really driving that forward and kind of her opinion on it. I think it'll be an inter interesting thing to keep an eye on over the next few years because I think cloud is, I mean, obviously here to stay. It's like saying, hey, the sky is blue. Um, yeah. so, so how are we going to secure it and, and make sure there are those type of security pieces in place that are holistic to drive that baseline forward is going to be important. Ryan, I, I appreciate the conversation today. Any final thoughts you want to leave with the audience before we wrap up? Uh, no, uh, I really enjoyed this conversation, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I, I did too. I think we covered a lot. There's a lot of things that are, I mean, the, the, you use the word dynamic for, to explain cybersecurity, but I think you could probably use dynamic to really as an adjective for all the different pieces of uh, technology happening and, and conversations happening within government digital transformation. So I think this was good to uh, to cover a bunch of that stuff and uh, and level set on where we are. So thank you again for joining today. I enjoyed this a lot. Thank you so much. It was I had a, I had a great time. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to govexec.com backslash podcast or wherever you access yours. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittastray B. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.